Lord, you took on our human flesh and transfigured it by your power. May we who are united to you by the power of your Holy Spirit be transfigured with Christ by the renewing of our minds, that we may become like him in his death, so that we may also share in his resurrection from the dead. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So one of my favorite contemporary novelists is Cormac McCarthy. He just passed away a couple of years ago. Any other Cormac McCarthy fans? Yes. Okay, a handful of you. That's great. Some of my affection for him comes from his close association with Texas and with the Southwest more generally. It's also like the kind of gothic character of his fiction. I really, I'm, I'm a big fan. Although he was born in the Northeast and lived for much of his early adult life in Tennessee, Later in life, McCarthy developed this really kind of enduring fascination with the southern border and with the southwest more generally. So he ended up moving here, first to El Paso and then to New Mexico, and a great many of his novels are actually set near the border. So I'm beginning with Cormac McCarthy because in one of his most famous novels, No Country for Old Men, he develops a literary image that, in my judgment, powerfully illustrates this reading from Mark's gospel today and in particular, the meaning of the transfiguration for us. In that novel, one of the characters, Sheriff Bell, remembers how in his father's generation, the cowboys who were on the trail, as well as the Native Americans who taught them, would carry the embers from the fire of one camp uh, to, the, like, to the next camp in an animal horn or in some other fireproof container. And in the more ancient Native American practice, the fire carrier was usually a really important member of the tribe and first in the trail procession. He had an important function, to start the fires they would need for cooking and for warmth on the trail. And in another one of McCarthy's novels, The Road, carrying the fire becomes an image for McCarthy of how historical memory works, how civilization and hope are preserved. In The Road, some nameless catastrophe has befallen the earth. The sky has somehow become permanently covered by a gray, thick cloud or smoke. I used to live in Pittsburgh and McCarthy's description sounds a lot like Pittsburgh winters. It's like October to, Mar to May, or more or less. It looks exactly like that. From the sky, an eternal ash is falling as if from like a volcanic eruption. And it covers everything. Nothing grows anymore. The trees have died and agriculture has died. Animal life has died. And humans carry on this kind of marginal existence as scavengers, picking through the remains of civilization to find cans of food and other imperishables. And as hope dwindles and a deep despair settles over humanity, Many have turned to brigandry and lawlessness and others, more ominously, to cannibalism. And the action of the book centers on a father and a son trying to make a way for themselves and to continue to hope when death and decay are their only companions. Near the beginning of the book, McCarthy narrates the death of hope by creating this analogy, this powerful analogy to the death of Christendom in the West. The father looks at the dismal sky and it says he sees a single gray flake sifting down. He caught it in his hand and watched it expire there like the last host of Christendom. I don't think this is like an idle or unintentional metaphor for McCarthy. The death of Christendom over the past 50 years has been a source of deep pain and alienation and despair for Western civilization. Even if the West, which is true, was fundamentally unconverted and basically pagan in its deepest impulses, it was nonetheless steeped in Christian imagery and biblical phrases and stories. Historian Timothy Larson has written that in many ways, Westerners up until the middle part of the last century were a people of one book. 
He can draw, and that's McCarthy. McCarthy can draw upon the pain of that image of Christendom dying to convey a kind of aching loss and bleakness precisely because the death of Christendom has meant exactly those things for Western civilization. Hope for humanity is utterly withered in McCarthy's book. But what's so wonderful and so captivating about the road is it's actually not a hopeless story. It's actually a kind of thought experiment about what it means to maintain and even cultivate hope in the midst of what is objectively a hopeless situation. Carrying the fire is the phrase that father and son say to each other throughout the book. It's a liturgy, just like what we're doing here on Sunday. It's a refrain repeated throughout the book, and it signals their commitment to have hope and to continue their quest. Each time they say it to one another, it signals a renewed commitment to maintain their humanity, not to become debased by the horrors that surround them, and not to live without conscience. So this image Carrying the fire has become for me a really important way of summarizing what we Christians are doing as we try to live out the gospel in confusing times, times of decline and transition. Now, we don't live in a post-apocalyptic wasteland yet, but it's also safe to say that we, <laughs> but it's also safe to say that we do not live in hopeful times either, right? We live in anxious and despairing times. And we know and we can tell of countless personal failures and institutional failures of people we used to admire in every area of society, including, and most painfully, the church. The Pew Research Foundation conducted a wide-ranging study of social trust back in 2018, and it reveals that trust is at an all-time low in American culture. And imagine, 2018, that's before COVID, that's before the storming of the Capitol in 2020, that's before conflicts in Ukraine and the Middle East, and countless other events here in the past six years, which are by far and away the most momentous and confusing of my adult life by a wide margin. Low social trust is an indication that there are no strong and healthy institutions that are at present capable of casting a compelling vision for the good life. There are no public leaders that young people can look to with admiration and respect for how to model their lives. This is a terrible place to be as a society. But if we're Christians, we should not be without hope. This is not the first time that the church has found itself in exactly this same situation. It's actually a distressingly common predicament that the church finds itself in at the, at the end of great empires and at times of profound social decay. And in these moments, the church, which has itself become caught up in the society of which it's a part and compromised by the corruption of the world, can turn again and look to the Lord to make good on his promises to renew our humanity. And it's the church, in those moments, when we turn to the Lord again, we come to realize our roots have not been deep enough. We have been so eager and anxious for social approval and relevance and respectability and influence that we're using worldly means to reach the world. And we suddenly realize we've been neglecting all the sources of our power. Dorothy Lee, who's written a tremendous book on the transfiguration as a motif in the New Testament, argues this way. She says, Western Christianity in many places is struggling for survival against the deadly secularism that smothers any sense of transcendence or mystery. This deadly secularism has another name in the Christian tradition. It's practical atheism. It's an atheism that reveals itself less in what is said than in what is done. The church, as much as the world we have to reluctantly confess, has become desiccated and shriveled in its interior life through a deadening embrace of secularity. Christianity says that the hope for humanity is what we read today. 
transfiguration. It is Christ transfiguring our humanity by assuming our humanity. And the church, both as a body and as individuals being transfigured with him. When Paul, in the book of Romans, turns from describing the glorious gospel in the first 11 chapters, and he then turns to unpacking its implications in chapter 12. Here's what he says. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Then he says this, Do not, be, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Now, what our Bibles translate as transformed there should really say, transfigured, because it's the exact same word in Greek that Mark, Matthew, and Luke use to describe what's happening to Jesus right here on the holy mountain, Mount Tabor. It's the same word, too, that we get the word metamorphosis from. What Paul is doing is pointing his readers to the transfiguration of Jesus as the hope for humanity. What Christ is in his very identity, the place where God indwells humanity, and the place where humanity is liberated from enslavement to the power of sin and death, we must also become by grace. Just as inside of a chrysalis, a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, so the hope for you and for me is that God will work in us just such a metamorphosis by conforming us no longer to the sinful and deathly secular pattern of this world, but to what humanity was always meant to be in Jesus Christ. We're meditating together today on the transfiguration as Mark tells this story. Now, for the Western church, the transfiguration has never been a major theological motif. But in the Eastern church, the feast is second only to Easter and Christmas as the most important feast of the year. And this is because the Orthodox have grasped that the incarnation and the humanity of Jesus is as significant for the church as his death on the cross and his divinity are. As the word becomes flesh, Christ heals our humanity and indeed transforms it so that it can be carried even above the glory of what it is by nature. United to Christ by the Holy Spirit, Peter tells us earlier in the letter that we read from today that our destiny as his disciples are to be, is to be partakers of the divine nature. The word for this transformation among the fathers and the mothers of the church is the word theosis or theopoesis. And this translates to deification or being made gods. Now, this language is pretty startling, and it can make Western Christians very uncomfortable, even though we find it in the earliest theologians of the church and in defenders of orthodoxy, people like Irenaeus and Athanasius. It's not that the creator ceases to be the creator or that we cease to be creatures, but that we are made godlike in all the ways that we were created to be that we come to inhabit the fullness of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. In the transfiguration, the hope for our human nature is manifested in the face of Christ himself. Christ himself becomes, even his clothes are transfigured. They're made radiant. They're made intensely white. It says whiter than any bleach could make them. The light of his divinity shines through his humanity and it shows us our destiny as his disciples. We are destined, being united to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, to have our humanity transformed in exactly this way. Now, if you wanted to create a kind of intense brightness in the ancient world in a dark place, how do you think you would do it? Flip on an LED switch? 
No. How would you do it? Make a super bright light in the midst of darkness. How would you do that? A mirror? Well, how would you create the light to begin with? Fire. Yes, very good. If you wanted to create a brilliant light in the ancient world, you would light a very big fire, okay? Light and fire go together in the ancient world. There's no LEDs, there's no, you know, torches, there's nothing like that. You build a fire. And so light and fire go together in the ancient world in this way. So when the ancient Christians began to interpret the transfiguration, their imagination put these two images together. It's divine fire that burns within Jesus and makes his face and clothing shine radiantly like the sun. That's what Matthew says. He shines like the sun. And yet the divine fire does not consume Jesus. It does not consume his humanity. Just like the bush that burned in the wilderness was not consumed, the bush that spoke to Moses. And if we understand salvation from this vantage, carrying the fire, where I started in the beginning, takes on an even deeper dimension. If we're filled with Christ, if we're carrying his fire within us, then we will also become incandescent, filled with his fire and the light of his glory. It will burn off every defect and impurity within us, but it will not consume us. So when you begin to understand this way of thinking about salvation as the healing and the transfiguration of our humanity so that we burn with divine fire and are filled with divine light and glory, you begin to see how deeply embedded it is throughout the New Testament. It's everywhere. And in particular, the Gospels. The transfiguration is not this stray incident in the Gospels. It's a motif that suffuses them thematically. Each one of the synoptic Gospels correlate what's happening at this moment on Mount Mount Tabor with what's happening with Moses at Mount Sinai. Jesus goes on top of a mountain, just like Moses does. A cloud descends upon him, just as it did with Moses. Moses and Elijah, Israel's greatest prophets, appear and they speak to Jesus. Luke actually tells us what the content of this conversation is. You know what he says it is? They're talking with Jesus about his departure. Guess what the word departure is in Greek? Exodus. Thank you very much, my Greek scholar. Yes, the word is exodus. It could not possibly be any clearer what the gospel writers are trying to do by setting this up as a motif. Jesus' transfiguration reveals what he is about to do for his disciples. He's about to lead them out into a new exodus from a very different kind of slavery. Slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Much deeper and more recalcitrant tyrants than the tyrants of this world. And it's clear from Mark that the disciples really have no idea what's being shown to them. But we we also need to spend just a second understanding why Peter responds in the way that he does. Sometimes preachers and commentators are like, Peter's just babbling, right? Because it says they don't really know what he's talking about, right? So they're kind of like, well, he must be babbling. He must just kind of making something up. But that's, that's not to take seriously these gospels as literary compositions. Mark is too much a student of Israel's traditions to be able to not understand what's happening at this moment. Crucial to Israel's hopes during the intertestamental period, the period between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, there's a belief that comes, that comes to, into place for the Israelites that God would come among them and tabernacle among his people again. Josephus, who's an important source for understanding Israel during the Second Temple period, records that among Jews, there was hope for a literal tabernacle in the wilderness again, just like there had been in that initial desert period. And so Peter is not babbling. He understands perfectly well that hope of Israel. 
Jesus' transfiguration is a theophany. It's a manifestation of God's presence on the earth. Jesus, right here in this text, is pregnant with God's presence. And Peter understands that. He's already seen and confessed in Mark 8 that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows exactly who Jesus is. And now he sees Moses and Elijah and the presence of God coming in the glory cloud. Peter's saying, this is the presence that we have been longing for. For hundreds of years, it's finally here. With Psalm 104, Peter knows that when God withdraws his presence, the whole creation withers. And Peter's heart is saying, Lord, I want your presence more than anything. Without it, I've been dying all day long. So Lord, if you wish, Lord, if you wish, I will build three tabernacles so that God's presence can stay here, can remain with us here forever and bring life again and flood the world with justice and mercy and the presence of God. Peter's misunderstood, right? But it's not because he's an idiot. He's just voiced the longing for God's presence to stay forever in his dark times, just like you and I are doing in our dark times. And this meaning becomes especially clear in the next verse. This bright cloud appears and covers Jesus and the disciples. And it's important to remember that whenever you see that cloud, what you are seeing is the glory of God come and suffuse that place and fill it with his presence. And so what Peter is longing for, what we're all longing for, is for the divine presence to come and stay with us forever and to transfigure everything. In fact, this is the Christian hope. The Christian hope is for resurrection, for permanent divine presence that transfigures our humanity. This transfiguration is the hope for humanity. And looking upon it, gazing upon it, Meditating upon it is the perennial source for renewal for the church. There is nothing else that will renew us from head to toe like this. In our despairing age, we have to meditate on this image and let, us, let it give us hope. I've already said earlier in this sermon how important the transfiguration is for Eastern Orthodoxy. And you probably know, if you know one thing about Eastern Orthodoxy, is that iconography is right at the heart of its piety. But what you may not know is that the transfiguration icon is the central icon for orthodoxy. It's at the heart of orthodox iconography. The uncreated light that, develops, that envelops Jesus here is the light that shines in all of the saints. Whenever you see a halo, that is the uncreated light that surrounds Jesus in that halo, right? It's the same light that's transfiguring the saints. And all of the saints, which is being said in these icons, have been transfigured into Christ's glory. Rowan Williams, commenting on this icon, says that looking at Jesus seriously changes things. If we do not want to be changed, it's better not to look too hard or too long. The apostles in the icon are shielding their eyes because what they see is not easily managed in their existing world. The light which they see in Christ's face is not a phenomenon of this world, but rather it is a direct encounter with the action of God which alters the whole face of the creation. If you're one of the walking wounded of this world, if despair has gripped you, if you've lost confidence in the power of the gospel, I want to encourage you to look on the face of Christ transfigured. That's what we're doing here today. That's why the white. That's why we have all of this liturgy. That's why we have the incense. Pay attention. Let Christ's power to transfigure you and to transfigure the church be your hope. Carry the fire. When we come to the Eucharist together, it is the hope that we will be transfigured together with Christ that we profess. And it is the hope that we receive when we are fed with Christ's body and blood. 
If you're hungry and you're thirsty for that hope, then I invite you to come. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.